Please turn with me in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 4. We're going to read the whole chapter together this morning. For those of you who are wondering again, why am I not in the Gospel of Luke or Matthew? We will tie this in, I promise. You have to pay attention. We'll come to you, I promise. Uh, we're going to be in Daniel for two more weeks, and then we'll go right into some of the Gospel narratives for the, the week of Christmas. Hear the word of the Lord. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, and that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the, mag the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last, Daniel came in before me, he who was named Belteshazzar after the name of my God and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw in their interpretation. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw, and behold, a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the ends of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beast of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heaven lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in my bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beast flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth. Bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field, let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beast and the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's, and let a beast's mind be given to him, and let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make it known to me, the interpretation. But you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, My lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and his interpretation for your enemies 
The tree you saw, which grew and became strong so that its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, in which was food for all under which beasts of the field found shade, and in whose branches the birds of the heavens lived, it is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to the heavens, and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its root and the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze and the tender grass of the field and let him be wet with the dew of heaven and let his portion be with the beast of the fields till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. It is a de decree of the Most High which has come upon my Lord the king that you shall be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be with the beast of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of twelve months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. You shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made known, made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers, and his nails were like bird's claws. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven. For all his works are right, his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Let's pray to the Lord. Father, we ask that you would help us to <clears throat> grasp not only the meaning of the dream and its application, but we would understand who is the king that this is all pointing us to, ultimately. That we would know that Jesus Christ is the king of the ages, the king over all the nations of this world, 
the king who grants to all kings their authority. We pray, Father, as we read your word, Lord, you would give us this great wisdom, that you would give us great power through it, Lord, to submit our lives to that great king, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. The anniversary of the bombing of Pearl Harbor uh, was this last week, and um, I read something online that put me onto a biography of a man named, forgive me if I'm not pronouncing it correctly, but Mitsuo Fujita. All of you know him very well, I imagine. Uh, he was the, the Japanese captain who actually led the attack of the bombing of Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941. So he was the national hero of Japan, who basically caused all the devastation that took place on that particular day. He was the one who also sent the code at, after it was all completed, saying, Torah, 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 showing that it was a complete and utter success. Uh, likely, uh, everyone knew this man's name within a period of a day after this happened in Japan. But uh, like every other young man, uh, Fuchida grew up as a young boy learning to hate the United States very early on, understanding that we were a wicked and evil, aggressive nation that had to be destroyed. And so when uh, the opportunity came for him to be able to lead this squadron of, of fighters into the Battle of Pearl Harbor, he was ecstatic for the opportunity to do so. And uh, as a result, uh, the consequence of his success, again, he did. He became a national hero. He was one of a, only of a handful of men who actually received a personal audience with the emperor, Hirohito. Most people never got to see him personally, but this man did. And yet, just a few years after the war was over, this hero of Japan, Fuchida, bought a house in California and wanted to move his whole family to the United States. Why in the world would he think that any of us here in America would want him here after all the devastation he brought upon our fleet and upon our nation? There's only one word, or rather one name that can be used to answer that question, and that's the name Jesus Christ. Soon after the war, Fuchida not only trusted in Christ as Lord and Savior, but proclaimed him publicly as his Lord within just a matter of years after the war was over. At a very small Christian gathering on a very busy street in Osaka, he jumped up on top of a car and with a loudspeaker in his hand, began to proclaim at the top of his lungs, my name is Mitsu Fuchida, who led the air raid on Pearl Harbor, and now I have surrendered my heart and my life to Jesus Christ. Immediately, all the crowds began to surround him. We're talking hundreds and hundreds of people came to hear what this man had to say because he was their national hero. And they're overwhelmed by the news that he is explaining to them. The next day, the headlines read both in Tokyo as well as Osaka. From a soldier of fame to a soldier of love, the miraculous conversion of the commander of Pearl Harbor bombing. The shocking headline of that day would be very similar to what we're reading right now in chapter 4 of the book of Daniel. The king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, is writing a letter 
sent to every nation throughout his empire that he has come to trust in the Lord, that he gives honor to the name of the Lord, the mighty God who does great things. This is a marvelous passage of Scripture, but an even more unexpected one, understanding that this same king had just a few years prior required every person from every nation, every government leader to bow before his own golden statue. And now he's writing a letter saying, now I give honor and glory to the God of gods who has set me upon my throne. Huge, dramatic change that's taking place in this chapter. It's a very unusual chapter. If you think about it, every other chapter in the book of Daniel prior to this seems to be about Daniel and his three friends who are suffering some kind of persecution underneath this king. And every chapter ends with them uh, coming out from underneath his persecution and, and the king acknowledging that, okay, maybe there's something to this, but yet still not acknowledging their God. But in this particular chapter, it has to do with Nebuchadnezzar and his own trials that he's undergoing, that he might acknowledge the same God, the God of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. As you know, this is the second dream the king has. Uh, we learned about the first dream a few chapters ago, but this is the second dream. And just as before, uh, as he's lying uh, asleep in his bed, God reveals himself to him, and he doesn't understand the meaning of the dream. And just as before, uh, the same way, he immediately goes and asks for his counselors, his magicians, to come and interpret the dream for him. And just as before, they can't do it. Shouldn't surprise us at all. But in this particular case, uh, uh, there's no threatening of dismemberment for those who can't interpret his dream. At least he's learned something from the last time that his men simply aren't capable of being able to explain the contents of this dream. And yet, nevertheless, it makes us ask the question, why does he go to them and ask for the interpretation if he knows that they can't give it to him? And why, on the other hand, does he not go to Daniel, whom he knows can give him the interpretation? It seems mainly because his heart is still hard. He simply does not acknowledge the words of the prophecies that has been given to him that his kingdom is going to be abolished and that there will be, there will be other kingdoms that will rise after his that will take even more glory. And so he doesn't want to acknowledge Daniel. But after they can't answer his question, finally he goes to Daniel once more and asks him to give him the interpretation. And... Uh, Basically, Daniel says to him, the, pur the purpose of this whole thing is so that you might know that God, the mighty God, is the one who has set you upon this throne, and he can take it away from you at any moment. That's the gist of the message. And so we see, for some reason, God continues to reveal this message to Nebuchadnezzar over and over again. Uh, the reformer, John Calvin, had this to say about the matter. He says that when God wishes to lead someone to repentance... He is compelled to repeat his blows continually. We're also hard-hearted and hard-headed. And in this case, the king is about to get pummeled. So that he will listen to the God of heaven. So when Daniel finally is brought before him, Daniel uh, sees the, the vision that the king has had. And immediately when Daniel sees and understands what is happening, he has frightened himself of the contents that he foresees in this dream. Of course, the, the, the timing of, of this 
is uh, very interesting. We still don't know whether or not this great statue, this 100-foot statue, is still standing. I imagine that it still is. And yet now, in this second dream, instead of seeing a statue like he did before, he sees a, a great tree, a, a mighty and great tree that's standing in the middle of the earth. It says that its height reaches up into the heavens. And it's such a magnificent tree. Everything about it is stunning. Its, its leaves are stunning. Its fruit is stunning. All the beasts of the fields are gathered underneath its branches, and all the birds of the heavens are nestled in its branches. Of course, as you can imagine, the image is, is meant to represent the king as well as his kingdom, at least from his own perspective, you see. The king, uh, I think that's the interesting thing about all of these dreams is that uh, the king is seeing himself in some ways, but he's seeing it from his own perspective, and yet God's cutting down that image each time. But he thinks he is a wise and benevolent king who is merciful and, and protective of all the nations of the world. He thinks that everything is gathered underneath him, and that through his great work, somehow they're going to achieve some sort of heaven on earth. In fact, if you take note of the language that's used here of its branches reaching up into the heavens. It's the same language that's used in Genesis 11 in reference to the Tower of Babel. Again, he's trying to build a kingdom up unto heaven, but apart from the Lord in his own way. His hope and expectation is that through his own kingdom, through his own will, all the nations of the world will have peace under his reign, and his name will be remembered forever. But just as the Lord confused the language of the builders at the Tower of Babylon, so he is going to take down every attempt of the king in this matter. Verse 13, we read that the watchers, the holy ones, these are angels, have come down from heaven and are ordering the tree to be cut down. All of its branches to be broken, all of the leaves to be stripped, all of the fruit to be scattered, and all the beasts and the birds to be scattered with it. If this statue, this 100-foot golden statue that Nebuchadnezzar made is still standing, we know one thing. At the end of this chapter, Nebuchadnezzar himself is not standing. God will take him down. Just as he set him up, he will take him down. But, but what's really interesting about this passage, though, is that in the revelation that's given to the king, it never mentions him being utterly destroyed. He's, he's not annihilating this king. Rather, he's simply humbling him. And humiliation in the eyes of Christians is not necessarily a bad thing, is it? In fact, verse 15, the angel says, to purposely leave the stump of this tree that represents the king and his kingdom, and that even though there's a, a band of iron and bronze around it for a period of seven years and even though we're going to see this man turn into a beast, if you will, this is for a, a temporary period of time. God is not seeking to destroy King Nebuchadnezzar. But there, there are a few other details in the dream that, that we get that this is what's unnerving even uh, Daniel as he sees it. But it's about this man ultimately losing all of his senses altogether, acting like a beast of the earth, eating grass like the beast of the fields. And it's interesting, when you look in verse 27, Daniel not only feels sorry for him, but actually an aspect of love and mercy fills up in his heart for the king 
And he begins to plead with the king that he would repent immediately so that maybe his prosperity would be lengthened so that he wouldn't have to undergo all of this for such a long period of time. And that should tell us quite a bit about Daniel as well as quite a bit about God's people in general. There's never a time in which we ever have to explain the judgment of God and do that with relish. Every time the judgment of God is mentioned, it's meant to be something that's sad. It's meant to be something that, that tears us up when we explain it. That's not our desire to see anyone destroyed, and yet nevertheless we tell them as an act of mercy to, that they might know that there is a way of salvation. And this is exactly what Daniel's doing for King Nebuchadnezzar. And yet still, with all of his pleading, with all of his coaxing towards repentance, we still see the king is not listening. In fact, uh, as you read through the passage, 12 months pass by, and there's no hint of judgment coming from God. To the point where I imagine Nebuchadnezzar is beginning to think just as the scoffers were thinking in 2 Peter chapter 3, when they said this, where is this promise of his coming? For all things continue on just as they were before. Surely there will be no day of judgment. He thought the danger had passed. Clearly, I'm safe now. The king's heart was not softened, but rather hardened towards the Lord. After all this time had passed, we find that he's walking on the roof of his palace, which never seems to be a good thing for kings. If you've noticed, when David is on the roof of his own palace, that's when he sees this naked woman, and immediately his kingdom crumbles as a result of what he does with that image. In the same way, King Nebuchadnezzar is walking on the roof of his palace, but instead of looking at a naked woman, he's looking at all the works of his hands and just marveling at his own great wisdom and power. He says in verse 30, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my own majesty? It's interesting if you can picture yourself on top of the roof of the palace in ancient Babylon. What would you see that he would have seen at this time? Quite possibly you're still staring at a 100-foot statue, a golden statue somewhere nearby. You're also staring at one of the seven wonders of the world with the ancient hanging gardens of Babylon that he built for his wife, a 75-foot terraced garden. You're seeing multiple temples that he's built to his gods and multiple civic buildings to his own glory. Clearly, he had reason to have pride in all of his accomplishments, more so than any kings prior to him, and certainly any kings in Babylon after him. We'll find that out next week. But nevertheless, it's not the works that he's made that so offends God, but rather the fact that he doesn't acknowledge that God is the one who's given him all of these things. God is the one who's given him the authority. God is the one who's given him the power. God is the one who's given him the wisdom and, the, and the, the gathering of all these people to make these great projects happen. And so while the words are still coming out of his mouth, immediately he hears a voice from heaven, verse 31 following, and this voice says this, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beast of the fields, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox. And seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know 
that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And immediately the text suggests that Nebuchadnezzar lost his mind. And then he runs out of the palace, buck naked and stark raving mad. We see him eating grass like an ox, his hair growing long like the feathers of an eagle, and his nails growing like the claws of a bird. Now technically this would not be what you might call lycanthropy, where a person who really believes that he is a wolf or that he's a werewolf, right? Rather the word would be boanthropy, in case you're wondering, which means someone believes he's a cow or an ox or a bull, hence the prefix bow for bovines. He literally believes that he's some sort of beast creature of the fields. Now, keep in mind, this is not like the youthful version of what we call furries today, which I still don't understand, where people dress up like cats and dogs and pretend to be like these creatures. This man genuinely believes he's a cow or a bull. And you think, well, that doesn't really happen. It's interesting. The, one of the commentaries I read on this passage was written by an author back in the 40s where he's sharing an instance where he actually saw a case of this at a British institution back in 1946. There he observed a 20-year-old man who seemed, if you just looked at him, like an ordinary human being, no problems whatsoever. He seemed fine, physically speaking, but mainly because the people in the institution constantly took care of him. They cut his hair, they cleaned up his clothes, they made sure that he, he, he got the proper uh, uh, care that he needed, if you will, but on his own, all day long, he spent 24 hours a day outside, like a beast. He refused to sleep in a bed. He refused to eat any of the food that they offered him. Instead, he would roam the grounds and eat grass. And they, pop, they purposely put bowls out for him to drink water, because otherwise he would drink from the muddy puddles. But literally... They continued to treat him and care for him in this way because he really could not get past the fact that he thought he was some sort of beast of the fields. It's a real condition that apparently, in this case, the Lord had brought upon King Nebuchadnezzar as an act of discipline. Now, I imagine most of us today probably take our sanity for granted. But if you think about it, a sane or a healthy mind is really no different than a healthy body. It's something that the Lord himself provides. If for any reason he decided to take that from us, it wouldn't be that hard, now would it? In fact, if you think about it, it's been said many times that sin itself is insanity. Every single time you commit sin and you reject your maker, you are not thinking right in your head. There's some sense in which you're not living in reality. You're living in a dream world. You think you're something that you're not, you see. There really is not much of a difference between sin and insanity. It's just a few steps along the way. As a result, because of the fall, all of us have this problem where we think much highly, much more highly of us than we should. And in some cases, more lowly than we should. But either way, it leads to all sorts of anxiety and depression and guilt and a whole host of other mental ailments, if you will. But in this particular case, like I said, God amplifies this as an act of discipline in the realm of the king of Babylon. It's interesting, though. Sigmund Freud actually taught that religion itself is a mental illness. 
Whereas the scriptures teach the exact opposite, that it's only the Christian who finally acknowledges the God who has made him that finally comes to his senses. Think about it. Romans 1 describes unbelievers who have rejected their maker as being of a debased mind that God has led them to because they will not accept him. They will not walk with him. They will not live for him. Instead, they're going to live in their own way. So in this case, Nebuchadnezzar is really very much like the demoniac in the Gospel of Luke in the days of Jesus. He's running around naked in a graveyard and hurting himself. And this is exactly what's happening with Nebuchadnezzar probably for seven years, at least seven periods of time, as it says here. But it's a lengthy period of time, a time of completion to help him come to the end of himself in order to acknowledge the Lord. Now, as crazy as that sounds, and maybe it sounds mean to you, I propose to you this is one of the greatest acts of mercy God has ever given to Nebuchadnezzar. Because through this act of discipline, he is finally coming to his senses. He is finally coming to the reality of acknowledging that he is not his own maker. He is not this all-powerful, wise man, but rather a very lowly person whom God has raised up to be in this very position. But you might ask the question, why? <laughs> why does God care so much about this king of Babylon and care whether or not he's going to be humbled in this particular way? Again, I'd submit to you it's because it's God's intention not to destroy him but to save him. God wants to save the wicked king of Babylon. Can you get that through your head? God wants to save an evil person. The chief of sinners, if you will. This is his intention. This is his will. And he's going to accomplish it. Whether Nebuchadnezzar wants to or not. God is going to have his way. And so he brings him to the end of himself to show that God can save even his most ruthless enemies. I mean, think about it. He does the same thing with Saul, right? He turns Saul into the Apostle Paul, right? If he can turn Saul into the Apostle Paul, he can turn a killer king into a sovereign saint. And that's what he's doing here in this particular passage. At the end of the time of his madness, the king finally lifts up his eyes to heaven. He's not looking out over his realm. He's not looking at himself. He's looking up for the first time to the God of heaven. And finally, he's acknowledging that this is the God who has made him, who has put him in his place. And immediately blesses God. He praises him. He honors him, acknowledging him to be the true king over all of the earth. The one who both raises up kings and casts them down according to his own purpose and will. If you, if you were paying attention earlier on, when David was reading the New Testament passage in Luke chapter 1, what Mary says when she hears that she's going to be the mother of the Savior of the world is very similar to what Daniel, not Daniel, what Nebuchadnezzar is saying in this particular passage. In fact, I'd say to you, she's actually quoting from Nebuchadnezzar at times in her own words of the praise that he gives to the God who has put him in his place. What she says in verse 49 very similar to what Nebuchadnezzar says. She says, he who is mighty has done great things for me. 
Notice what Nebuchadnezzar says in verse 2. It seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. Clearly, he's speaking here as a believer in the, in the previous chapter. He acknowledged that the mighty God was over Daniel and his three friends, but he never acknowledged that he was anything to him. Now he's saying he has done great things for me, that just as God brings down the mighty from their thrones and, and exalts them to this humble estate, he has so been humbled, and now he exalts the rightful king over all the world. I, I'd say to you that this is a, a telltale sign of a true believer such a person doesn't refer to God merely as God or the Lord, but as my Lord. He doesn't just speak of the works of God as these are good works that God has done, but these are good works that God has done for me. The, the whole powerful testimony that Christians have is that this is what God has done for me. Not just for people, but for me. There's, there's, there's much truth in, in Francis Thompson's um, the poem, uh, The Hound of Heaven. If you haven't read it before, go home and, and read it. It's online. It's free. But in it, he describes God continuing to pursue him, to chase him down every path, every street that he walks upon. Every single time he rejects the Lord, the Lord is still hounding him, pursuing him, chasing him until finally he comes to his senses and acknowledges that God is not only his maker, but his Lord. That's exactly what's happening here with Nebuchadnezzar. And I submit to you, it's the same thing that happened to Mitsu Fuchida. Uh, it's interesting, a little bit more of the backstory to his life. What led this man to all of a sudden step onto a car in the middle of a busy city and yell that Jesus Christ is my Lord? What would happen to cause this? Well, all throughout World War II, this captain begins to see the hand of God, and he can't quite explain it. There are two instances where his plane goes down into the middle of the ocean, runs out of gas both times, goes down to the middle of the ocean. The ocean's quite, kind of big, right? Goes down to the middle of the ocean. Both times, he's saved by the same captain of the same Chinese junk boat who just happens to find him like a needle in a haystack wherever he goes down and saves his life. If that man were not there, Fuchida would have died in both instances. Fuchida was also in the Battle of Midway, but he was not fighting. He was laying in a hospital bed on, on a ship, having just undergone an appendectomy. The ship was bombed, and the ship went down, but when the second bomb hit, it blew him out of the boat. Literally, it broke two of his legs. Well, the only two he has. And he's sitting there, lying there in pain, and then a boat just happens to come by and saves him. But many of his crew members are dead. They all went down to the bottom of the sea because this ship was no longer there. To add to that, Fuchida was in the city of Hiroshima on August 4th, 1945, the day before the bomb fell on the city. He was supposed to be there the whole week. But that night, he had gotten a phone call from the headquarters in Tokyo asking him to come there for another meeting. Everyone else who stayed, they all died. Two days later, he comes back to the city along with the party to estimate the damage that took place there. 
I don't know exactly how many men that were with him, but every man that went to go examine the damage, they all died of radiation poisoning. But there was no evidence whatsoever that he had any exposure to it. So it makes a man think, right? Why does this power, and he, he was something of an atheist prior to this, why am I continually being preserved? Why am I still alive when everyone else has died? Well, over time, uh, after the end of the war, you, you, you mind if I tell you the rest of the story? <laughs> at the end of the story, at the end of the war, that is, he was still a very bitter and angry man, <clears throat> particularly against the United States and particularly against all that's happened because now they're the losers of the war, right? And many of his colleagues were brought up on war crimes, and he had to come to their defense for how they had treated American prisoners. Because, as you know, the, 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 the Japanese code was that of revenge. You're supposed to basically humiliate your prisoners and torture them and everywhere else to restore the honor of your homeland. So that's what they did throughout the war. And so every time he gave his testimony and tried to defend his men, his men went to prison anyway. And he became even more embittered against the United States. Interestingly, um, he wanted to find out what had happened to the Japanese prisoners in the American uh, prison system. And one of his colleagues who was actually in the plane with him, one of his engineers, um, had been taken captive during the Battle of Midway. And he immediately asked him, so tell me how bad it was. And uh, this friend of his began to tell him it wasn't bad at all. In fact, um, it was the most astounding thing I've ever seen. Uh, particularly, there was one woman there whose name was Peggy Covell, if that's how I'm pronouncing her, her name rightly, who gave us the, the most tender and warm mercy that we have ever received in our lives. And after about three weeks of her asking, how can I help you? How can I minister to you? How can I show you mercy? A couple of them began to ask, why are you treating us this way? <laughs> what would possess you as an American to treat us in this manner? And she tells them, because my parents were killed by the Japanese army in the Philippines. They were missionaries in the Philippines at the time. And I was very embittered with the Japanese until I realized this. That the last 30 minutes they were alive, they were praying for their captors who were going to kill them. And eventually I learned, through the mercy of God, that I ought to love my enemies in the same way. So this man, who was a friend of Fujita, comes back to Japan and shares this story of how, on the one hand, this American family was killed by the Japanese soldiers, <clears throat> how another girl is ministering to them in love, and, and he doesn't understand it. It makes no sense to him whatsoever. And so he begins to ask the question, what would cause someone to love in this way? Um, and as he's at a train station, <clears throat> soon after hearing this story, there's an American missionary who's handing out leaflets at the train station. And on the leaflet, there's a, a story of a man. <clears throat> it's a track that he hands out. And the track reads this way, I was a prisoner of Japan. And it begins to tell the story of, of a man named Jacob DeShazer, who was sent on a mission to bomb the city of Tokyo. Uh, and he was very glad to do this because uh, right after Pearl Harbor, after Fujita led this raid on Pearl Harbor, he hated the Japanese and wanted to give them payback. And so as a result, he went on this 
this mission to kill Japanese. And he didn't wait until he actually got to the military targets. Instead, he would see Japanese fishing boats go by and start shooting at them. Innocent civilians, he wanted to kill them too. And as a result, his plane went down. I think he ran out of gas. There was always a problem with gas in World War II. He went down, <clears throat> immediately was taken captive, and was considered uh, a war criminal for shooting at Japanese civilians. And while he was in prison, it made him even more angry. He hated them all the more, was cursing them out left and right. And then all of a sudden, he remembered one night as he was about to go to bed uh, a story that he was told when he was in Sunday school, back when he was a little boy, about how God can turn someone who hates everyone into someone who learns how to love. And so he asked for a Bible to read so he could figure out what in the world that story was about because he couldn't remember the story. So this should tell you, all of you who teach Sunday school, somehow it does get through their heads. It really does. I'm standing before you today because of a Sunday school teacher when I was a little kid. But in this particular case, it took him about three weeks before they got him the Bible. When they finally gave it to him, he started to read it. Within a week... He began to show respect and love to his captors to the point where one of the guards came up to him and said, <clears throat> said to another guard, that must be a wonder-working book. I've never seen anyone change like this man has changed. And as a result, um, he is, uh, learns to love the Japanese people. When finally he's released, he goes back to the United States and um, goes to seminary, gets his degree, and then goes back to Japan to tell them about the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why these leaflets are being handed out. Well, as you can imagine, this Fuchida reads the testimony, a second testimony of something that just dramatically he can't explain it because he, all he understands is revenge, and, and instead these Americans are not giving him revenge, but rather love. He begins to read the Bible for himself, comes to faith in Christ, and then wants to move to America to tell people about the love of Jesus. Isn't that an amazing story? You don't hear this in the American history books today. <laughs> True story. Go look it up. It actually can be verified. There are a lot of people that doubt whether Nebuchadnezzar ever wrote this letter. I tell you, he did. Um, history, it's, it has a tendency to be forgotten over time. It's good to repeat it. But I, if I were to ask you the question, why is this particular story in the book of Daniel, why is it here? It's, it seems so unusual. God is saving the king Nebuchadnezzar. At first we think the story is really all about Daniel and his three friends. It's really not. It's about what God is doing through king Nebuchadnezzar to reestablish faith in God for the Jews. Because the point is, if God can forgive the wicked king Nebuchadnezzar for all of his heinous sins, cannot God forgive you as well? O Jews, who have been brought to a foreign land and been treated as slaves and been killed left and right because of your disobedience to the law of God, can God not forgive you too? I mean, it's, it's a wonderful story. It really is. Um, eventually, they would be restored to the promised land, to that place where the leaf supposedly never withers and the fruit never dies, at least as a foretaste of that. 
But it reminds me of the 18th century Christmas carol based upon Christ being the true tree of life that Nebuchadnezzar attempted to be. And the name of that hymn is called Jesus Christ the Apple Tree. <clears throat> In it, the author says this, The tree of life my soul has seen, laden with fruit and always green. The trees of nature fruitless be compared with Christ the apple tree. His beauty does all things excel. By faith I know but ne'er can tell. The glory which I now can see in Jesus Christ, the apple tree. I'll sit and eat this fruit divine. It cheers my heart like spiritual wine. And now this fruit is sweet to me that grows on Christ, the apple tree. This is the, the true point of Nebuchadnezzar's dreams, the, pro, the true issue of the, the whole gospel story, that Jesus Christ came to earth to save sinners, of whom Paul says, I am the chief. If God can save wicked Nebuchadnezzar, and he can save Mitsu, Fuchida, and that American Jacob who wanted to kill Japanese left and right and turn them into lovers of God and lovers of men, what can he do with us? Praise God for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that as we continue to meditate upon the gospel story, as we meditate upon the Christmas story of why Jesus came to earth, as a little baby, in weakness, to show that we're not as strong as we think we are, that we're not as sane as we think we are, but you do marvelous and wonderful things in very unexpected ways. Oh, Lord, continue to show your faithfulness through our testimony and through the testimony of those who hear the gospel through us, we pray. Jesus.